and welcome to Insemination, the podcast brought to you by your lovable, demon, chaotic sperm donor baby, Laura High. In this podcast, we will be breaking down how this multi-billion dollar infertility industry has been getting away with these unethical practices for decades regarding donor conception. And I am so excited to go on this journey with you guys. Now, not only are we going to be recording this on an audio file for you all to listen to on your commute on your way to work, but we are also going to be filming this. So if you'd rather watch this on YouTube, the entire episode is there waiting for you. Our very first guest was an egg donor in the early 2000s, and I covered her story on my TikTok and Instagram, where it garnered over 1 million views. Her story captivated and freaked a lot of people out. So I thought, let's have her tell this story in detail and in depth for all of you. So without any more waiting, I am so excited to introduce you to our very first guest, Vanessa. Vanessa, how are you doing today? Great. How are you today, Laura? I'm doing very well. I'm so excited to have you as a my first guest on this podcast because we recently covered your story on my TikTok. It got over a million views about your experience as an egg donor. How did that feel to know that your story had over a million views? It felt good knowing that we were reaching the people that needed to be reached for this story. Well, I think that your story was a, I don't want to give everything away too quickly, but I think your story was such a reality check to recipient parents, donor-conceived people, and donors um, to understand what we are really, I'm going to say, hypothetically facing or some challenges that we are facing and uh, a very, I would say, a potentially very scary situation that we might have on our hands. And because your situation is so well documented, uh, for everybody who's listening, please know that with this podcast, we also have a video on YouTube of it. We're going to be showing copies of medical records. We're going to be showing copies of emails. So if you would like to see Vanessa's evidence, please understand that it's all there on the YouTube video for you to show. So I was connected to you on TikTok about almost a year ago to this day. It was when I heard your story. And so let's start from the beginning. Let's start when you first decided to become an egg donor. Walk us through what happened. Um, I was approached by the the founder of the clinic um, at a a doctor's office, and she proposed um, egg donation to me and gave me a business card. And I was still in the process of breastfeeding my daughter at the time. And so it was not something that I could even consider at the time. And then later, you know, I thought about it again. And I decided after I had stopped breastfeeding that maybe I'd reach out to her and connect with her about that. And I did. And she walked me through the process and she invited me to her house. And we Wait, went she, to her house. she invited you to her house. You, you went to the egg donor coordinator's house. Correct. Okay. That seems I, I, I like I okay sure yeah now i want to just go back a few paces where where did this egg donor coordinator find you at um at a fertility clinic that was also an obgyn clinic in chandler arizona why were you uh, attending that clinic um i had just um followed up for my six-week postpartum after having my daughter okay so this was your your checkup you just gave birth and so how did How did she approach you? Like, did she have like this, like a booth set up in the lobby or something? No, as I was leaving the the office and stepped outside of the office, she approached me on the sidewalk outside. 
Oh my. But she had been sitting in the lobby while I was waiting to be called back prior to that. Oh, that's icky. Okay. So she was just chilling in an OBGYN clinic looking for potential egg donors? That's all I can assume. How did she, how do you even approach somebody like that? Like, how, what did she say to you? She told me that um, I had features that she liked and she thought that people might be interested in having me as their egg donor. And um, she told me that there was a lot of benefits for being going through this process and helping other people. And, you know, it seemed like, you know, she was genuinely trying to help other people. I, I mean, you are a very, very stunning individual, but the, that that phrasing just it it feels it, it, there's something kind of creepy about it. it. It kind of feels like, am I a Build-A-Bear? Like, what's going on? Um, if you don't mind me asking, were they offering a a good amount of money to this or was this not really well paid at this time? Because what year was this? This was 2002 through 2000, about 2004. Okay. The compensation was not, I don't feel like the compensation was adequate for the amount of things that I've endured over the years mm. that I didn't anticipate happening. But at the time, I mean, it was 2000, 2002, 2003. Okay. To me, it seemed like a lot of money. Okay. But it wasn't, but looking back on it, you feel like it wasn't worth it. No, looking back on it, it was it, it it was nothing looking back on. But your intention going into it, it sounds like you really wanted to help some people out. That seems like that was your intention. Yeah. It, it, and when I was matched with my first donor and I found out or my first recipient and I found out that she was pregnant and how how excited she was. I mean, that did feel good. That that did feel good knowing that she's going to be a mother now. So tell me about the process now, because like, obviously, like genetic testing, uh, how donor screenings work are is so different right now. Now, I, I will say the laws haven't changed. Like to this date, no clinic has to verify a medical history that a donor hands in. There's no kind of uh, regulation in terms of genetic testing. But we do know that it has definitely changed quite a bit throughout the time. So what was the process in terms of you getting approved to be a donor? Because right now, like if you listen to people on the internet, they say to be an egg donor, it's extremely hard. You have to go through this huge process. What was that process like for you? Um, I'm thinking that the process now to sign up was quite similar to what it was then. Um, there was a psychological evaluation that was more of a, do you understand what you're doing? Okay. Not as in like a mental psychological evaluation. Um, there was um, probably maybe 50 sheets of paper at most um, going over uh, my known medical history, anything that I've had come up in my past, um, my childbirth, how, you know, labor and stuff like that. It seemed like it was it was kind of like filling out doctor's office paperwork with a little bit of genealogy attached to it. Um, there, there was some blood work. I did, you know, typical blood labs, um, urine testing. Um, I believe I was, um, STD tested. Um, I believe they, they also did HIV AIDS testing as well, but that's, for genetic. That's the one federal regulation that the FDA has is they always test all donors for STDs. And that's been the rule for, for decades right now. So 
Glad to hear they stuck to that. Very happy to hear. Um, do you know if they, are you aware if they did any genetic testing on you? Um, I don't know if they did any genetic testing. I think they might've checked for things like cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was another one that would have been ethnicity based that they checked for, but I don't recall what that one was. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that there was any, any other major testing involved. Now, at the time, this cryobank clinic was called XNY Consulting? Correct. And your consultant, your connection was a woman named Diana. We won't say her last name, but her name was Diana, correct? Correct. Okay. So you meet with Diana at her house, which is still a little little funky to me, but ooh, um. And so you meet Diana. I did take I did take somebody with me because we've all heard those kinds of stories. You know, I, I wanted to make sure nobody disappeared. So I did take somebody with me for safety reasons. Yeah, she wasn't she wasn't just trying to harvest your eggs. You know, you you left with all of your kidneys, you know, everything attacked. It, yes, okay, correct. Um, so you met with Diana. You how was that meeting at her house? Like, how were those initial meetings with her? Did they feel good? Did they feel nice? Was she pleasant or was it a little bit more clinical? How did it feel to you? It seemed like it was a, it, her, her home was very nice, beautiful home. Um, she had a home office in, in the back of her home, which was a family oriented office. Um, there, her, her kids toys were in, in the office. Um, you could tell that her children were an active part in her office regularly. Um, it seemed like it was a legitimate business that was being run from home okay. with somebody that was very family centered. What is the process of being in it? So you signed up, you got approved, and it sounds like you also had to submit some photos of yourself. Correct. I, I submitted um, a handful of photos that... Um, that were the current photos at the time they were all just you know regular mm -hmm. photos okay so you get approved you start the process so walk us through what it is like getting ready for the retrieval getting ready for the retrieval i think i had approximately a dozen medical appointments where i went to a fertility clinic that was the closest to my house and I had an internal sonogram where they measured um, each one of the follicles in my ovaries until they reached a certain size. They took count of all of those. Um, you can see those numbers on, on the paperwork that I sent to you. It's, it's charted in different numbers. And so each time I would go in, I would have an ultrasound done and then they would adjust my medications and either increase medications or add medications to the, medic to the cycle that I was already on. And every single one of those medications were delivered um, through an injection that I had to give to myself. So there were quite a bit of injections. Um, they were all stomach injections, except for the last one, which was a muscular injection. And um, we, I went through that process. And um, when they decided that they were ready to retrieve the eggs, then I would finish up with the last shot, which was the retrieval shot or the, the, the one that I guess ripens the eggs, we would do that. And then I think it was about 24 to 48 hours after that happened, then I would go into the clinic and they would prepare me for um, the retrieval process and sedate me and go in and get the eggs and then wake me up and, you know, that was done and over with. 
so you on my side yeah so now for you you it wasn't please please stop me if i'm incorrect uh but this wasn't like a a sperm donation where you go fill out a bunch of tubes and it's frozen and people just buy them you a parent a family would pick you that's my donor and then you would prep to give eggs specifically to them and you did how many cycles my 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 belief is that's how it worked out because i was matched with my first donor and then i had an accidental encounter with one of my other or excuse me my recipient um and then i had an accidental encounter with another recipient in a clinic so i assumed that all of these cycles were were for an individual family that had chosen me as their donor yeah but i can't verify that that's what occurred every single time. Yeah. So we, we don't know if like while retrieving the eggs, they possibly maybe froze some eggs. We, we have no idea. It's possible that my eggs might've been retrieved specifically to be resold as frozen eggs that were already, already frozen on hand and available for them to ship immediately. Um, that's possible. But again, we we don't know. And I want to make that very clear that that's, but you definitely did seven cycles. Now, were you warned ahead of time of any potential side effects of being an egg donor? How did that conversation or did that conversation exist between you and the doctor? Um, I believe that the doctor and I did have a conversation about um, overstimulation of the ovaries. Mm -hmm. And um, because that's how I knew what was happening was that somebody had told me that this was a, a possibility and one of my cycles, um, I actually did have um, overstimulation and I had to go to the emergency room. And when it when it came on, it was very abrupt. Like mm. I had I had I believe I had already done the retrieval and it was a short time after the retrieval. And the symptoms when from the point where I thought something might be a problem to the point where I'm like, yes, there is definitely a problem right now. Um was maybe an hour and a half. Like it oh just, gosh. it moved so fast. I mean, to the point I, I was, I was sitting at a dinner table when I started to have the thoughts that something's wrong. And by the time that the server had brought my meal, Ooh. I asked for a to-go box because I couldn't even eat it because something was wrong and went to the emergency room and I checked in and they said my ovaries had been overstimulated. And I want to make this very clear. This is a very serious thing. I mean, this is this isn't like a small side effect. As you said, this is ER. Uh, I have interviewed another egg donor who almost died on the table because of this. Um, can you explain what overstimulation, what that specifically means? Um, they told me I had um, free fluid in the pelvic cavity, and um, I'm I'm not exactly sure where it was coming from. Um, but it was, um, there, it, it involved intense pain. Mm. Um, it was probably, I would say that it ranked right up there with, with having a surgical procedure done without anesthesia. That's, that's the level of pain. It was, I've never had an encounter where I was in so much pain that I was screaming in pain, but this was a screaming and pain encounter. I did not scream in pain during childbirth, but here I was, I, I was, I, I was well, not feeling this very much. That, you know what? That makes it very crystal clear. If you weren't screaming in childbirth, but you were screaming in this, 
Oh, no, thank you. All right. That I, I think that um everybody with a uterus, I think, just clenched up right there. Uh, all right. Well, there was another thing, too, that during the process of donating, your ovaries become so enlarged with with eggs mm -hmm. that you have to be consciously aware of how you move your body and how you sit down because you can feel your ovaries jostling around oh. inside of your body. And it is, it is painful to have the sensation of things. It's similar to a pelvic exam. Oh no. Oh, that, that just, blah, 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 blah. Oh no, no, no. Oh, I'm going to be feeling that description for a bit. Oh, blah, blah, blah. oh okay. Ha ha. Okay. We can, we, mm -hmm. no, thank you. All right. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. That was needed. That was needed. We all needed to hear that. We all experienced that uncomfortable sensation together. Okay. No, good information to know. All right. So, um, but you got to meet one of, you accidentally met two, but you did meet your first family that you got matched with. Yes, I have. I am connected with the first family that um, I donated to. Shortly after she got her positive pregnancy test, she reached out to the clinic that had matched us and asked if I was interested in mutual contact. And um, we exchanged email addresses. And over time, we connected more uh, through social media. And, you know, now we know who each other is, we're involved with each other's life, you know, she's gotten to watch my kids grow up, I've gotten to watch her kids grow up. So it, it's been it's been nice having that connection with her. Uh, I, I know this is sort of off subject, but just so that our, our listeners can understand, because I obviously am somebody who advocates for open ID, has the experience for you as a donor been positive having open ID with your the donor, your biological children? I mean, obviously, I know you're not raising them, but is it nice for you to just be able to see them and go like, all right, they're good. They're they're happy and you can be there to answer questions for them. Has that been a positive experience for you? I think that it has been a positive experience um, from about the time that the first family's um, child, one of their children was about 12 years old. Um, they had always shared with their children that they were donor conceived. And so they knew about, about me from a very, very early age. And when one of their children was about 12 years old or so, um, they began asking questions and becoming more curious and interested. And when when their mom told me this, you know, I found out that, you know, the daughter was creeping my profile on on social media and she was checking me out and stuff. And so, you know, as I learned more about her, I left things about myself because my profile was still very private and I left things about myself public that she would be able to see that she would be able to, Oh, you know, maybe this is where it came from. Oh, you know, she's interested in crocheting and knitting too. And, and so am I, and some of the hobbies and interests and, you know, some, some very, very, very specific, like synchronized swimming. That was kind of like a. Wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. But that's really cool. And I'm glad, I'm so glad that that was a positive experience because I think that there is, there's a lot of people when they hear open ID, because it is something that the majority of donor conceived advocates really advocate for, uh, simply just for safety reasons. Um, it is really nice to hear of a positive story 
um, and saying that like, no, you can do it. You can handle it successfully. So that's awesome. But going back to your stories. Now, you said that you ran into one of your recipient families by accident. How did that happen? Um, I was at the clinic and I was preparing my cycle. I don't remember exactly what stage of the cycle I was in or how far into it I was. Um, but I was in in the, the lobby of the waiting room waiting to be called back for my appointment. And my husband was there with me and our my youngest daughter was there. And she was at the age where she was almost starting to walk. She was at that real clumsy stage where, you know, you still need to keep a, a close you know, watch on them to make sure they're not cracking their head open. And there was another couple that was in the lobby and they were in the waiting room also waiting for their appointment. And, you know, they were, you know, noticing the baby and, you know, they were smiling and, you know, positively interacting with, you know, our daughter as she was, you know, greeting them and, you know, looking at them and engaging them. And then the, the people at the clinic that were running the clinic came out and shuffled me off into one door, my husband and my daughter off into another room. And I'm assuming the couple into a different direction because when I came out, I didn't see them. Okay. And um, when I found out what was going on, they told me that my recipient was in the lobby and there was only one other person in the lobby. Okay. You got to at least see them, but then you've had no other contact with any other, uh, any other, any of your other recipient parents, which hypothetically we know there should potentially be six others since you did seven cycles, you know, one of them. So we know that there's six other families out there who received your eggs. We don't know about reported births, but we, we know that you at least have six other families. And now we are going to skip a few years in future. And you start having some health issues. Uh, what year did you start noticing those health issues? What year did that start? Um, I think it started around 2012, um, shortly after the birth of my last child. Um, was My last child was born in 2010. By 2012, I was starting to understand that I have a medical problem and began going to the doctor and trying to actively figure out what is going on. And I think I made my first request for a cardiac referral in 2012. Okay. What were you feeling at the time? What What was the sensation? Um, I had a lot of dizziness mm -hmm. and my chest felt real heavy. And I would um, get to the point where I was almost like I was going to pass out, but then I wouldn't pass out. Mm -hmm. But then there was other times that I actually did pass out, but because it happened at home and it had it hadn't, it hadn't offed me yet. So I figured it wasn't something that was that serious. Okay. So wait, wait, your, your standard is it hasn't killed me yet. So it's probably fine. Yes. Well, I had gone to the doctor and, you know, they're all like, well, you know, come back when it happens again. So I'm like, well, it hasn't killed me. So, I mean, so yes. So I, you know, I'm like, you know, this, this is getting really bothersome by 2015. It was to the point where it was debilitating. Like I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. I would get out of bed and I started experiencing. Yeah. It was getting to the point where getting out of bed every day was difficult. I was getting out of the bed. Like I was intoxicated and stumbling around my house Ooh. and falling. And oh I would, I would spend, you know, a good portion of the day, you know, trying to gather myself up after these events. But 
it didn't make sense to me because I felt drunk, but I didn't drink. Okay. All right. So now we get into, I believe it was 2015 was when things really started to get amped up. I believe you mentioned that you started fainting. Yeah, I was um, at a salon with my one of my youngest children that day and they were getting their hair done. And um, I passed out in the salon. And by the time that I woke up, there were paramedics there. Or they were already on scene. The fire truck was there. And, you know, they gathered me up and took me to the hospital and checked me out and everything seemed like it was okay. And um, they thought that it was epilepsy. So I set up an appointment with a neurologist to get that checked out. Did you have any history of like epilepsy in your family or? I had one cousin that had a seizure when she was in third grade, but it was after a significant injury. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe that her her seizure in third grade was related to a medical problem. But you did it. You went to the neurologist. You think it's epilepsy. Um, and we continue forward. So then what's the next phase? Um, after seeing the neurologist for um, about six months, um, and he was documenting each time that I had one of those episodes where I would pass out and they thought I was having a seizure. And one of the common factors is after a seizure, you're supposed to go through a period where your body is recovering and you're very fatigued and very tired. And a lot of times some patients sleep. I wasn't going through that. So I was coming, I was going from unconscious to being able to sit right back up and get up off the floor, carry on with my day. For the most part, like that didn't just happen. Yeah. And, um, when I was reporting this back to the neurologist, the neurologist was very, very adamant about this needs to be evaluated by a cardiologist mm-hmm. to the point where the neurologist was calling me on the phone after my appointments, you know, in the following weeks yeah. after my appointment to to verify I, I'd seen a cardiologist. And so I finally made an appointment and went and saw a cardiologist to get it all checked out again. And I assume you had a bunch of tests. Yep. Um, we did the stress test. We did um, an echo. Um, I had all of the testing done that could be done there in a cardiologist's office. And the cardiologist um, offered me a heart monitor, like a, an external heart monitor where, to wear for two weeks. And so um, I got that and I went home. And 13 days later, I had an event. Okay. Describe the event. What happened? Um, just prior to, um, going in for, or, you know, while I had the heart monitor on, mm-hmm. I had discovered I had a small lump in my breast. So I went to my, my OB and got a referral for a mammogram and they wanted to biopsy the, the lump. And so all of this is happening in that 13 day time period. And so I go in for, this is day 13, for the biopsy, which is a fine needle biopsy. They kind of just like poked it and to see what they were going to get from it. I mean, can I just say, I'm so sorry. Like you are having a medical rough moment in your life. Like, oh my God, you go from passing out, epilepsy. Now you have a lump, like events. Like, oh my God, I am so sorry. Like, ah. Yeah, it was was an ordeal for for a couple of 
years trying to get that all sorted out I'm and so figured sorry. out. That's so sorry. That's oh god. I am so sorry. I'm sorry for you. I'm sure your family was freaking out as well. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. So so I had the biopsy done that day, and um, they took a little a little piece of it. And as I was leaving the clinic, you know, I had a lot of anxiety about what is this because you know, it, you know what if it's breath. I mean, that's very, very serious. You know, I'm, I'm like very stressed out about yeah. it and I'm speaking with the nurse and the nurse kind of leans in and tells me, Hey, it kind of looks like a fibroadenoma. Oh God. What is so that? Fat. Okay. Like, like, like a fatty lump okay. of tissue. And so that kind of really like, like settled me down okay. as I was going home and so I was Googling it and, you know, I took a picture of it with my phone because you know, I needed the visual to, to make comparison because I've got to go home and diagnose myself to make sure they diagnose me correctly. As you should, you got to advocate for yourself. I love it. And I would, right. I would do the same thing. Absolutely. Und completely. I love it. I love the energy. Yeah. So that day when I was leaving the clinic, um, I had my heart monitor with me because I had taken it off just before the procedure and they were offering to help me put it on. But I was like, no, no, I'm, you guys have touched me enough today. I'll do it by myself. I'm going home. I just, I need to leave right now. I need some independence. So, I need some space yeah. too much. Yeah. So I go home and my husband's all like, I got cookies. I got a movie. <gasps> oh, We're doing this. Husband. Yes. And gold stars. Oh my God. Right. And so we're at oh, home and I'm it. like, all right, before we get into this movie, I'm getting like my ice pack is sloshy and warm and it's gross. Let's get this changed out and fixed. Mm -hmm. So we go into the bathroom and I've got ace bandage wrapped all the way around my chest to hold this ice pack in. And so I'm like, all right, you know, pull my shirt up over my head. You know, he's starting to unwrap me. And I said to him, I'm going to have one of those seizures again. Oh, my God. And so he's all like, oh, my gosh, you know, you don't have your heart monitor. on." So he runs to grab the heart monitor and I run for the couch because I need to sit down. Somewhere Team effort. Injure my Team effort. I love it. Right. I love this. And so I get to the couch and I don't particularly remember the events that happened next, but he tells me that he hooks the heart monitor up to me, puts the stickies all on me and turns it on. And he says, I pushed the button, but I don't recall pushing the button. And um, it recorded a 21 second ventricular standstill. So basically the upper portion of my heart continued to beat while the bottom portion stood completely still technically like a flat. Oh my God. Yeah. And so it was like that for 21 seconds. I was unconscious during that event. Oh, oh my God. I, okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, I know you're here. I'm looking at you, but still this is like, oh, okay. All right. So that happened. Then what happened next? Um, my husband, um, because this, you know, we, we believed this was epilepsy and um, there was a protocol for epilepsy and my husband and my daughter are both standing in front of me, like looking at me, like, you know, is it time yet? Do we call 911 yet? You know, they're, they're, they're standing there, you know, waiting for, you know, have we met the regulations for calling for help yet? And someone, either my husband or my daughter had accidentally, um, pushed, you know, they, they were, they were already preparing, they had it dialed and everything and they were waiting for, 
you know, to make the call and somebody accidentally pushed the button. And so 911 was on the other end of the phone listening to them discuss, well, is it time to call 911 yet? Do you know, you know, trying to figure out, you know, mm-hmm. what does Vanessa want to happen right yeah. now? And so when they realize there's an active 911 call, um, they start talking to the operator and they're telling the operator that I'm having a seizure and I regain consciousness Okay, and I'm starting to wake up and like, I am realizing that, you know, they're talking to somebody about me and it's, it's, I've had another seizure. I know what's going on and, but I'm still, I'm slurring. Um, my speech is very, very awful at this moment. I'm struggling to put words together and I'm also I feel like I'm saying those words out loud, Mm -hmm. but I'm not saying anything to anyone. So my perception of what was happening was, was very different than what I, than what was really happening. Okay. And, um, I gained the ability to talk again. And, um, I spoke with the 911 operator. Um, I'm having a seizure. This is a medical problem that we know about. I don't need any help. Don't send me an ambulance. And I didn't, I wanted to go on with my cookies and my movie, you know, you know, we had, we had planned. I got to know what movie and how good were these cookies? It was, um, I want to say, oh gosh, I am going to have a brain fart on the name of the movie. It's the movie where Katniss Everdeen. Oh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games, yes. It was Great Hunger movies. Games. It was one of the those. prequels are about to come out. Yes. How timely of you to say. Fabulous, good promotion right there. All right. <laughs> yeah. So it was that. We were we were getting ready to watch that. And it was gluten-free cookies. They had just come out with the gluten-free Oreos. Ooh, so I was okay. hooking myself up with some gluten-free Oreos, which because I have celiacs also, which was diagnosed during all of this process because one oh of my the, God. the major symptoms. I found out that through, through getting diagnosed when they first found out, thought I had epilepsy. I had all these tests done and I saw a GI because one of my symptoms was vomiting and I found out I had celiac. Oh my God. So I was just, you know, sticking to my brand new gluten-free diet and, you know, got myself some cookies and was going to hook it up. And celiac, just for everyone, you know, as we're on the egg donor subject, that is genetic. That is absolutely something that, that is genetic. Okay. So that's one genetic thing on the docket. Okay. So you really want to get back to your gluten-free Oreos. You really want to watch your Hunger Games. You're telling everyone I'm fine, even though I'm slurring my words. I just passed out. Leave me alone. I have to say, after all of this, I'm like, I want to party with you. You sound like the person (laughs) because the fact that your standard is like, I don't need to go to the doctor till I'm dead. Like that's my, I'm like, I want to, I'm scared to, but I also really want to party with you. Okay. (laughs) I'm not that wild. It sounds like, uh, it, well, it it sounds like what you would consider as wild or not wild (laughs) is very different than most of us. So yeah, maybe it's a sliding scale. (laughs) So anyway, all right. So you want to get back to the movie. You're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then what happens? the doctor starts calling and I'm like, okay, the doctor's calling me and it's the doctor himself. Oh, and yeah. And I'm like, all right, you know, this is the head honcho on the phone. You know, like I've never, you know, I've been called by the neurologist, you know, and he was wanting me to see the cardiologist. Now here's like 
the head honcho cardiologist calling me. And up. because he's, because you have the heart monitor on, the heart monitor automatically sends a signal to his office. Okay. Yeah, it sends the signal to the monitoring company, and then the monitoring monitoring company immediately calls the doctor's okay. office. One of the calls that occurred during the nine one one call right. was the heart monitoring company calling on another. Got phone it. Okay, because. I was in cardiac arrest and they were trying to give CPR. Understand. Okay. So, so we had a lot of phone calls going on. All right. But we still had the gluten-free Oreos and the Hunger Games to watch. Okay. But the cardiologist, the head honcho calls you. What does he say? Um, he says, you know, I, I need you to get to the emergency room immediately. He said, um, you've got a heart issue. And I said, no, I just had another one of those seizures. And he said, that was not a seizure. I need you to get to the emergency room immediately. Where are you? I will send you an ambulance. And I was like, <laughs> no, we're not doing the ambulance. You know, I live in a small town and there's one ambulance. And if you send me the ambulance and somebody who's really having an emergency needs it, I don't want to be the person that took it from them. So I'm like, I, my husband will drive me. And so we get like a mile down the road and I'm like, maybe we should have called that ambulance. It was awful. okay. So you get to the hospital <laughs> one way or another. I feel like we need to, like, as our first act on this podcast, we need to send your poor husband some flowers. That guy, <laughs> that guy. Oh, he is so traumatized. I'll, I'll have to tell you about what happens in the middle of the night around here. You know, he, he checks to make sure I'm alive. Oh, my God. Okay, so we need to send your husband some cookies and some flowers. We need to like go fund me for that. Oh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> so you get to the hospital, you're in the ER. What happens? And you know, the, the ER is full of people that need to be seen. And I walk through the doors and I love how you're not considering like, yourself someone who needs to be seen. Right. I mean, I'm I'm going to wait my turn. <laughs> And so we walk in and my doctor's there, the cardiologist is there. There's a whole team of people mm -hmm. that are just like standing there waiting for me to walk through these doors. There's the bed, the gurney's all there and they have a crash cart. Okay. And I'm like, oh my God, like, this is for me. Like, this is serious. And, Maybe we should have taken, um, taken the ambulance. We should have taken the ambulance. Okay. And so I get hooked up and everything and they tell me that I have um, a heart problem. And I mean, at this point, I'm still, um, I'm actually struggling to understand what is being said to me, okay. because of the the lack of blood flow I had at the time, oh. I had a heart rate of 21 beats a minute. And it was slowing down to 14 beats a minute. Okay. And I was having a lot of difficulty struggling um, with concentration. Um, I couldn't get up off the bed, um, they had put external pacing pads on me. And it was, they were using a medication to try to increase my heart rate that made me feel very sick. Okay. Um, so it was, it was a lot of difficulty in the beginning moments of getting this whole situation figured out. But the one thing that I knew is that I was having heart surgery. They were putting in a pacemaker. Oh my God. And so I, immediately that I was getting a pacemaker. I mean, that's incredibly serious. So you were given, you got heart surgery, you were given a pacemaker. What was the end result diagnosis? Um, six sinus syndrome. Six. I had 
Yeah, I had a third degree heart block, which caused me to pass out. And it, it was, a, and it was it an was electrical a- heart block. It wasn't like plaque. I just want to make sure that we. Correct. It wasn't like a heart attack. Okay. It's not like a stra- like a stroke or a blood clot. It was an electrical blockage. All right. For all of us who are are, are new to this term, what, what specifically does that mean? What, what is, wh- how does, what does a, spe- a specifically sick sinus syndrome, a third degree, third degree heart block specifically mean? Um, how would you describe that? Um, my heart has an intermittent um, heart rate where it could be very fast. Mm-hmm. I could have a very rapid heart rate. Like in my sleep, I could have a heart rate of 200 beats a minute, or I could have a very slow heart rate of like 21 beats a minute. And it can alternate between those rhythms at any time very rapidly, like from one minute to the next minute, it could change. Um, and I've also, I was also diagnosed with um, an arrhythmia, um, the ventricular standstill, which is the top chamber of my heart continues to beat and the bottom chamber holds completely still. And the cause for concern for that is while the top chamber of my heart is still pumping all that blood into my heart, the bottom chamber of my heart is not pumping it out. And that runs the risk for um, developing a blood clot. I could have a stroke or um, develop AFib or any other mm-hmm. arrhythmias that would you know, go along with that. And so it was, it was pretty serious. And just to make sure we're all on the same page, this going unchecked, undiagnosed, unfixed, this is something that is fatal. This This is is fatal. fatal. Okay. A a good majority of people who have the same arrhythmia that I had out of hospital, um, the survival rate, I is like less than 5%. It might even be lower than that for people who have this particular rhythm out of hospital. And for those people who do survive this particular arrhythmia out of hospital, um, the rate of people who survive it without cognitive impairment is even lower. So the fact that I am cognitively still intact is unbelievable. Well, I... And that's terrifying. Obviously, we are all so happy that you're here. Um, and I'm that's that's a miracle within itself. And oh, my oh, my God. And that's scary. I mean, I, I that's terrifying to go through. And I'm so sorry that you and your family went through that. Um, and. I the the piece of it that I'd love to to kind of bring it back to our subject is what you have is genetic. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to talk about the genetic pieces of it uh, before we get into essentially our, our part three. Um, your And how we know that this is certainly genetic for you is your son has already gone through a, a medical procedure recently, correct? Yeah, he's having the procedure on the 27th of of March. So on Monday. And what, what procedure, if you don't mind me asking, what procedure is he getting? He's having a um, loop recorder put in. He's having a reveal, I think it's called a review Q-Link put mm-hmm. in, um, which is a small device about the size, a little bit smaller than like a thumb drive you would plug into your computer wow. and it gets implanted right over the heart muscle mm-hmm. or right over the heart, right between the ribs. 
and it is kind of like an internal heart monitor and he will wear that for up to three years and we're hoping to catch whatever is is troubling Mm -hmm. him with with the heart monitor and when and luck not no luckily um the fact that you were in contact with your first recipient family you were able to connect <laughs> later on that the because it was twins from your first recipient family correct and they were already showing signs of this when when they were born um they had um they were in ICU. They were born prematurely. I think, I think they were about, I'm not exactly sure what gestational age they were when they were born. Mm-hmm. I think they were between 32 and 34 weeks at birth. They were, um, they were very, very small at birth. Mm-hmm. This was at the beginning of our relationship. So um, mom was still reserved with the information that she shared with mm-hmm. me, you know, because she knows me. Of course, I, I get and, that. Right. And so, um, she did share that they had um, tachybrady syndrome and they were being treated with, I believe they were treating them with caffeine in, in ICU. Um, I don't know if that's the typical course of treatment for that, you know, for six sinus syndrome with a baby or what, what they believed was happening at the time, but it, it didn't, when, when I had all of these problems come up and I was diagnosed my memory immediately, I mean, I think I was, I, I think tomorrow is the anniversary of my cardiac arrest. It was in 2016 on March 22nd. And I spent about a week in ICU. And by April 1st, I was making contact with my recipient to notify Mm -hmm. her of what had happened. I mean, I'd just gotten home from the hospital that day. And it was the knowledge of coming home and thinking about everything that had happened to me. And then, oh my gosh, she told me that they were having tachybrady syndrome at birth, ICU. Oh my God, I need to contact her because they have it too. There's a problem. And for all of our listeners, tachybrady syndrome is linked to sick sinus syndrome. There is a direct correlation. Um, And... One, I just want to say, like, as a donor conceived person, thank you for having that thought. There's a lot of donors out there who go through similar situations who just kind of go, eh, and it ends up leading to very late diagnosis for donor conceived people. It's um, it's caused donor conceived people to be very sick and to suffer. So I just want to say thank you for connecting that dot. So you contact her immediately and and you mm-hmm. let her know. Um, and then I'm sure you realize oh my God, I donated to at least six other families. So yeah, that, that thought came, it wasn't an immediate thought. My first thoughts were to my, my recipient that I knew and to her children. And then I think it was a good six months later. It was like, oh my gosh, everybody else. Like, because they're, 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 you know, they're not visually there for me to see. It was easy to almost forget about yeah. them No, I, I understand. until it was like, oh my gosh, yeah. like I didn't tell them, like I, I need to. And then it was like, you know, I've got to find the contact information and, you know, like all this different, you know, like 
who who was you know like because I looked up the clinic and I couldn't find them anywhere. I'm like, where'd they go? So X Y, you know, so just to, so just to make sure that everyone's following. So you were looking up X Y and consulting. You couldn't find them anywhere, and because that was the bank you Correct. that was the clinic you donated to. So then, what was your next move that you did? I began to, um, from my own memory, try to recall her contact information so that I could send her an Diana. email and correct Diana. and and reach out to her and connect with the founder of the company mm-hmm. so that I could notify her. And I I went and looked for her online and found information that led me to her email. And I was a, a couple of I was a little off. But I found the correct email address and began emailing her Mm -hmm. to, you know, hey, I've got medical information that I need to update. Um, This is pretty serious. You know, like, you know, I don't want somebody's kid to die. Um, And just for anybody who's listening right now, we are showing um, visually on screen right now the emails. You can see them. Um, Vanessa, the fact that Vanessa was able to find and keep all these records to show her paper trail is Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so just letting you know that's all there. So you're emailing Diana, and then what happened? Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Okay. So that nope, nothing happened oh, at all. That's terrifying. All right. So then, so we hear nothing from Diana. So then, what what do you do? What what what's the next time jump? Um, I started to um go back to my memory and try to you know, what were the names of the doctors that were involved with this procedure? What was the name of the clinic? Where was the clinic at? Where did I go? And so I started reaching out to the doctors and contacting the doctor's and this, clinics and telling them. this was them, in Arizona. This was in correct. Arizona. Okay. Yeah. And so I reached out to um, the clinics that had been involved with my process. There was at least three clinics. And so I began emailing the clinics and one of the clinics told me that the clinic had been rebranded as as the egg so bank. it's now the it's and now called the world egg and sperm bank so xy and consulting correct. turned into world egg and sperm bank again uh showing the emails um in where you discovered that okay mm-hmm. and so um i reached out to them and i think i reached out to two different people through their clinic trying to make sure that they had received my contact information and had gotten my my contact regarding mm-hmm. um, my my heart condition and and you know trying to make contact with them so that they can notify the recipients. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, I noticed right away was that um, they never asked for positive identification. They, they well, never... they asked for your donor number, which you did not have. You you said that you were just Correct. labeled as Vanessa donor, so they were asking for donor number, but beyond that there there doesn't seem to be any they're not i was never provided a donor yeah uh i i don't have a donor number as well but um but i I, i'm actually very surprised you didn't have a donor number because you were a donor during that time so that does surprise me but you said you were you were known as vanessa donor so they're they're talking to you and then finally you seem to be connected to some kind of official person who's working in the administration of World uh, World Egg and, and Sperm Bank, and her name is Clarissa. Again, we're not going to give out her last name, but you email Clarissa, and she seems to have some form of authority. And her right. email to you, uh, I remember it, it said, thank you for your due diligence. We will take it from here. Mm-hmm. And 
that seems to be the end of it. That was the end of it. Was there any kind of follow-up that you got? Any kind of confirmation? Did you follow up again? Um, I think I did follow up on it again um, about it maybe a year after that, but I don't remember the particulars okay. of that. But one of the things they never did is they never asked for medical records for when, when I told them this is what my condition is. They never asked me to provide anything. They never asked for a medical record release so that that they could obtain these records from my cardiologist or from the hospitals. Mm. They never asked for any of those things and or a positive identification on myself as well, because even though that I represented myself as Vanessa donor to the clinic, well, all the clinics knew my, my legal last name, okay. the, the agency, you know, for the egg bank and the, the clinic, they also knew my last name too, but they didn't confirm any of that despite the fact that my medical records had my married last name on it. Okay. There was no connection there. So I, I don't know how they were able to verify my okay. identity. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, you and I don't work in the, the clinic and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we don't <laughs> know exactly how everything plays, but that does, I agree with you. It's concerning to say the least. So we hop to the future and you're talking, you're communicating with your first recipient family. And mm -hmm. you ask them the million dollar question. Has anybody told you from the clinic? And what did they say? No, they got their medical information from me. So no one from the clinic contacted that first family? No. That is, I mean, thank God you do have contact with them since it's clear that their children are affected, that's terrifying. And that's why you and I are, I'm going to say, concerned that they've not contacted the rest of your families. Correct. I'd be happy to provide everybody medical records for this situation. And you and I posted this story on TikTok. It got over a million views uh, since we've posted has World Egg and Sperm Bank gotten in touch with you? No. And they've not gotten in touch with me either. Um, that's... I, I mean, again, we don't, we don't know. We have no idea. I would love for this situation to be cleared up. I would love for that peace of mind for you. Um that this was taken care of. Um, but yeah, it's, that's terrifying. And it's the ethical thing to do to notify all the families. Yeah. And just to be, just so that everybody who is listening um, can understand there is no, there, there is no regulation in terms of updating medical history. That doesn't exist. Right now, it's it's fully up to bank policies. Now, some banks, some clinics have internal systems in which donors can update medical uh, update a medical history. Um, but not all banks do, not all clinics do. And even the clinics and banks who do have a way to update, it's not always, let's just say it's not always uh, well run. Um, and Oh, my God, it's just it's scary. And you have found out recently how actually genetic this is in your family, because you didn't even know 
how much this actually is genetic for you. Uh, can you go into that? Um, in 2008, my father died. Um, he was, um, he died from a heart problem. He was found unattended on the floor of his home um, by himself when he didn't show up for work. How old was he? 49. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And not only this affected him, it affected another family member as well, correct? Yes. Um, his mother, um, when she was 47 years old, um, she was walking through a large department store and um, she collapsed and she was taken to the hospital and she was diagnosed with um, having a stroke and it was likely an AFib precipitated stroke. So she probably had a very similar condition. And when did she pass away? Um, she was, I believe she was 47. Oh my goodness. And looking back, you mentioned uh, to me that you actually believe you were showing signs much earlier than you you realized. This wasn't something that you just started showing signs in 2013. You were showing signs earlier. And if potentially you had this information, then you would have known. But how early do you believe that you were showing signs? I believe one of my first incidences where I had an incident where I was passing mm -hmm. out, um, I believe I was about 15 years old. I mean, I think that that's a very reasonable assumption. The fact that your son is already showing signs. He's 12 years old. The, the We at least know that two of your donor conceived children were showing signs at birth. Um, so one of them takes medication now for um, the donor conceived children. Yeah, um, she takes medication. It is for a form of, she's been diagnosed with a form of um, POTS, like POTS mm -hmm. syndrome. Can't remember the exact yeah. form, uh, but six sinus syndrome can very easily, very easily be misdiagnosed as, as a form of POTS syndrome. So it does very much concern me that she has a condition like or a diagnosis like that when I have a sick sinus syndrome diagnosis. Well, and especially because she had tachybrady syndrome also at birth. I think that this whole entire story also just illustrates the importance of medical history. I mean, you went mm -hmm. through years and years of misdiagnosis. We don't know tests. And if you had known sick sinus syndrome ran in your family, you would have known much earlier on. And Correct. And this isn't like you had, this isn't like your, your family has like genetic hangnails or something. This is, this right. is fatal. This is, this is essentially heart failure. Uh, Correct. This isn't something we mess around with. This is major. Um, and that's why certainly you and I are both very, we, we would just like to know that they updated those families. And I hope to God they did. They just don't really want to talk to us. I really hope that that's the case. Um, but you and I right now are very much on a mission to find the rest of your recipient families because we, because that is the most, that is the number one biggest priority is those kids. They got to know because they hypothetically could be around 21, 22 potentially right now? Yep. Or if, you know, maybe younger siblings, yep. if they had 
you know, younger children as well. So, um, so hypothetically, if we're going along the right timeline, they could already be showing signs and symptoms and just have no idea. So I would love to do a call out to anybody who's listening. If you used eggs from X and Y consulting in the early 2000s, and your children may have had some, maybe maybe they're having some issues, maybe they're not. And you had a donor, Vanessa Donor. Uh, you can visually see her if you go to the YouTube video. Also, Vanessa has one of the photos that was used in one of her profiles. She's gonna hold it up for you in uh, just a second so that you can see it. Maybe that can help you recognize it. Um, we are actively trying to find those recipient parents and those donor-conceived children to, well, donor-conceived adults now, to make sure that they have this information. We hope, there's the photo, fabulous, thank you so much. Fantastic model photo, oh my God. Oh my God, freaking smoke. Oh, not me. That's, that's not, not you, me. oh sorry. Uh, but no, that one's not me, that's where it's That's published. where it's published, okay. But that is, but we wanna find you and we just wanna ensure and what we hope to is when we find you, you're going to tell us, yes, the clinic totally called us. We totally knew we've got it taken care of. And that's great. But if you don't know, we want to make sure that you can have this information for your kids so that you can provide them proper medical care. They can provide proper medical um, medical care for themselves, because obviously you've heard from Vanessa, this gets very serious, very fast. And it also really goes to show other recipient parents why open ID is so freaking important is stories like this. Vanessa's story is not the only story like this I have heard. Vanessa's story is just singularly the best documented story I've ever heard. The fact that we have all of her emails, we have all the correspondence, we have all the medical records was gave us the ability to come as forward with this as we potentially could. But this is not even close to the only story I've had that is to this nature that involves heart failure, that involves um, even involves epilepsy. So please, please use open ID donors. And for donors, please be open ID. This literally can save lives. Well, Vanessa, um, before we head out, is there anything else that you would like to say? Anything that we forgot that you really want to address? Um, anything else that is on your mind? No, just I hope that we find everybody and are able to provide them with my medical records so that they have the information that they're entitled to. And that's it. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being the very best first go first ghost first guest I could have ever had. Um, thank you so much. I'm so happy that you are are working with our community. You are, I would say, honestly, like the ideal donor that we would so want because of just your spirit and your empathy and your compassion. That's what we want as donor conceived people as donors. And that's what means so much to us. So thank you for, for doing all of this. And thank you for standing by your ethics and really making your voice heard in this. And for everybody who's listening, help us amplify this. Let's get Vanessa's story out there so we can find those families. If you do think that you are Vanessa's egg donor conceived child, you can find Vanessa on Ancestry and she just took her 23andMe test. So it'll be a few weeks till she's on there, but 
Ancestry is good to go. Thank you all so much for listening to our very first episode of Insemination, and a big thanks to Vanessa for sharing her story. Us in the Donor Conceived community are always so unbelievably grateful when it is not just us speaking up for our rights, but it's also donors like Vanessa, recipient parents, or whistleblowers from the infertility community. And please remember, if you are a recipient parent or a donor-conceived person who thinks that you might have used Vanessa's eggs, please, please contact us so that we can get you the medical history that you so desperately need. And if you enjoyed our podcast today, please leave us in a review and a comment so we can help spread this very much needed information for the rest of the world to hear. You can find me on all your social media platforms at Laura High Five. And please join us next week where we will be conceiving a whole new episode of Insemination.